The show you love with even more local, local news, news and more local talk. talk. The voice of the valley. The Mike Douglas Show. Now weekdays from 3 till 5. On air and online. Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Here's your host, Mike Douglas. And a wonderful Tuesday afternoon to you here in California Central Valley. Mike Douglas with you, your concierge for conversation here on the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Thanks so much for joining us here as we tackle the big issues of the day that affect you and me directly right here in the Central Valley of California. Uh, just in, oh, maybe about an hour and a half ago, apparently uh, California lawmakers uh, in the Assembly Judiciary Committee up in Sacramento have approved two more abortion-related bills SB 1142, again, this is the Assembly Judiciary Committee, has uh, passed SB 1142 that would establish abortion services fund for low-income and out-of-state people and a website. Uh, So I guess we'll be paying for that as well. And then the uh, Assembly Judiciary Committee has also approved SB 1245, which sets up a pilot program in Los Angeles County to expand and improve access to abortion. There, I would assume that's because the um, anticipated result of the uh, Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade is that lots of people are going to be coming to California seeking abortions, many of them to uh, Los Angeles. So there's, uh, there's an update on what's going on with our legislators up in Sacramento. We'll also talk about, a little bit later, uh, another abortion rights issue going on, as well as four gun bills that are being discussed uh, as well in the California legislature. And by the way, program note today, uh, in our 4 o'clock hour, we'll have the privilege of having our our faithful, retired FBI agent Bob DeKlinski on with us. We'll be talking about... The Supreme Court decision regarding the Second Amendment uh, recently, uh, we'll talk to uh, Bob about that as well as a lot of the myths about shooting and uh, gun handling and strategies. Um, Some of those questions came up the other day as we were talking about the Supreme Court decision. So, again, retired FBI agent Bob DeKlinski will be with us in the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, to talk about the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court decision, and myths about <clears throat> shooting strategies as well. I wanted to address three headlines today, right off the bat. And and the, I'm going to connect, connect the dots on those for you in, in just a second. First of all, the bodies of, I think, the body count now is up to 51 uh, illegal immigrants were discovered inside of a tractor trailer in San Antonio, Texas. They're saying one of the most deadly recent incidents of human smuggling along the U.S.-Mexico border. No signs of water were found in the truck. It was abandoned next to railroad tracks uh, near the outskirts of the city. Sixteen other people found inside the trailer, including four minors, were taken to hospitals for heat stroke and exhaustion. The temperatures... Now imagine this. Imagine these people inside of that trailer 
Temperatures in San Antonio hit 103 degrees yesterday. Police Chief William McManus said a person who works in a nearby building heard a cry for help and came out to investigate. Who is the person who drove that truck there filled with illegal immigrants in over 100-degree heat, knowing they had no water, and abandoned it there? What do you think ought to be done to that person if and when found. Now, second, in my hit parade of things that are bothering me today in terms of headlines, John Hinckley Jr., did you know this? John Hinckley Jr. is now a free man. He's a free man. Held for 30 years at a psychiatric facility after he attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. That was back in 1981. That's that attack, remember, uh, President Reagan hospitalized for two weeks. That's the same incident that paralyzed Press Secretary James Brady and also wounded a police officer and a Secret Service agent. John Hinckley Jr., now a free man, spent 30 years at a psychiatric facility. Apparently, they feel he's fit for public consumption now. I'll uh, ask a question about that. John Hinckley Jr., now a free man, walking among us here in California. And then uh, the third thing that is bothering me today, Jelaine Maxwell, remember her? The jet setter. Sentenced to 20 years in prison today for trafficking young women to be used for sexual gratification by Jeffrey Epstein and the men he brought to his little island there. So Jelaine Maxwell, she's apparently 60 years old now. She was convicted back on December 29 in a federal court on uh, five of six counts of sex trafficking, including one count of trafficking a minor. She uh, was proven to have recruited and uh, was in the made a practice of grooming 14 to 70, uh, 17-year-old girls. And what was the purpose of grooming those 14 to 17-year-old girls? Well, so that they could be sexually abused by... Jelaine Maxwell's employer, Jeffrey Epstein, also her lover, I guess, off and on, over a 10-year period, beginning in 1994. Now, she only wanted a five-year prison sentence. If you remember, they said she was on suicide watch before the sentencing. And uh, during the trial, an expert witness testified about uh, the grooming, and we won't go into them here, but the grooming techniques that Jelaine Maxwell And Jeffrey Epstein used to lure these 14 to 17-year-old girls. Now, one of these victims, one of these victims has spoken out. Her name is Annie Farmer. Here's, uh, Here's what Annie Farmer had to say. Maxwell and Epstein were predators who were able to use that power and privilege 
to harm countless individuals and for far too long the institutions that should be protecting the public were instead protecting them. Now what's a common denominator do you think with all three of these stories? The guy or the gal or the team that abandoned that trailer containing at least 51 immigrants who died in over 103-degree heat yesterday in the outskirts of San Antonio. John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to assassinate President Reagan and who now is walking freely among us. Angelaine Maxwell, who conspired to groom 14- to 17-year-old girls so that they could satisfy the sexual desires of Jeffrey Epstein and the customers that he brought to his island. What common denominator do you do you see in all three of those cases? I'll tell you the common denominator I see, and then I have some separate questions regarding each of them. But what, what do you sense about each of these? For one of them unknown whoever the driver of that truck was, whether a man, a woman, or a team. What, what is, what's a common denominator between all three of these? Let's think about that. We'll be back in three minutes as the Mike Douglas Show continues on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Take the Mike Douglas Show with you every weekday from 3 till 5. Download the free iHeartRadio app and follow 1360 KFIV. And welcome back to the Mike Douglas Show here on this Tuesday afternoon on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. We're opening the phones at 209-551-3483. 209-551-3483. I'm asking the question, what do you think the common denominator is in three cases? One, the person or persons responsible for driving a, a trailer and abandoning it and the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas, in triple-degree weather. And so far, I think about 51 illegal immigrants have found to be dead inside that trailer with no uh, evidence of water at all. Secondly, John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to assassinate President Reagan in 1981. He has now uh, been released after 30 years at a psychiatric facility. And then finally, uh, Jelaine Maxwell, uh, the... um, Main squeeze for Jeffrey Epstein and the lady who uh, helped him groom 14 to 17-year-old girls to satisfy his sexual uh, pleasure as well as the pleasure of the people he brought to his island. What do the, all these people have in common? What, 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 what is the common denominator here? Let's find out what you think. Area code 209-551-3483. Eight three. Let's begin with Frank from Carson City. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's a hot show today at over a hundred degrees. But <laughs> yes. I, my perception is being an older gentleman and learning some morals, ethics, and values, which are being diluted by the left position or by our schools. That there is no value to human life. And whatever you think is right is what they're teaching. 
is acceptable. And so that's why our society is degenerating a little bit every year. So leaving people in a truck to die is not of any big difference or deal. And using women for just sexual gratification, again, is no big deal. It's what you feel right about. And uh, killing people for whatever reason or hurting people, like a lot of the gatherings of people and just going crazy is not a big deal anymore. So could I could I summarize your answer, Frank, as being a, a lack of conscience? Yes. In fact, that would be very much a lack of any responsibility or conscience. Yeah, I I think that's uh, that's a good good answer, Frank. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, and it sounds like you're out on the road in those triple degree heat right now, right? Yeah, well, the things you'll do for your grandkids, which is a different <laughs> stage in life. Uh, I hear you. Well, Frank, thanks so much for uh, for weighing in today. I appreciate your call, Frank from uh, Carson City, uh, saying, well. Uh, to him, all three of those cases reflect uh, a lack of conscience, uh, a lack of value of human life. I like that. Uh, that's uh, that's a good answer to uh, what what is the common or what are maybe there's more than one. I think maybe so uh, more than one common denominator to all of these cases. Again, the the person or persons who abandoned these illegal immigrants in the, in the back of a huge trailer left to die in triple-degree heat with no water supply. I think the body count now is up to 51, and there's some people uh, who were taken to the hospital uh, as well with uh, stroke and heat exhaustion, and including four minors. Then we have John Hinckley Jr., now a free man, and uh, after attempting to... uh, assassinate President Ronald Reagan back in 1981, and then uh, Jelaine Maxwell, the jet-setting main squeeze of Jeffrey Epstein, and she convicted of human trafficking. 14- to 17-year-old girls to be sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein and the men that uh, paid him to have their services. I, I like the lack of, of conscience, you have anything to add to that, my friend? 209-551-3483, 209-551-3483. Like Frank, I, I think there's uh, another underlying issue here, and that is pure evil. I think that each one of those cases exemplifies a uh, surrender to just pure evil. That these are not just accidental lacks of judgment, lapses of judgment. No, these are intentional acts to satisfy base desires with absolutely no concern for, or as Frank from Carson City pointed out, no conscience of the people who were the victims here. None. None. 
And I, I, I'm by the way, I, this is very interesting to me. Uh, Jelaine Maxwell, as as we've stated before, prior to the sentencing, uh, she was said to have been on uh, suicide watch. What do you think will happen to Jelaine Maxwell? Will she wind up as another in custody death, like her lover? Jeffrey Epstein? And I'm not going to debate this right now, whether Epstein was a, a suicide or a, or a homicide. I, we've, we've been down that route. We don't know. We can only surmise. I am just, especially because the setup is there, right? They, they said she was on suicide watch. I'm wondering if she will wind up dead in prison. I've uh, just, I, I'm, I'm not hoping for that. Again, I, I'm a big believer in the rule of law. But uh, I just, what, what do you think will happen to her? Do you think she will uh, wind up uh, with the same fate as Jeffrey Epstein? Another question for you regarding John Hinckley Jr. I have a, I have a real uh, ethical problem with people who either successfully, well, people who uh, successfully or attempt to assassinate leaders of nations. I don't think they should ever get out of custody. And it doesn't matter to me whether they prove that they, uh, they're now upstanding citizens. Great. Let them teach. Let them let them uh, instill their new moral code of honor to other prisoners. Let, let them be mentors in prison if they are, if they are so well healed. Let John Hinckley stay in that psychiatric facility and perhaps he can help others who have tendencies like he had. I, do you think people who try to assassinate, especially the president of the United States, and I, it doesn't matter to me who the assassination is attempt, attempt is upon, do you think they ought to be ever allowed out of prison or out of their psychiatric facility? My opinion is no. Well, you're a pastor, Mike. What about forgiveness? Forgiveness is a personal thing that you extend to someone else so you don't carry that burden of disliking them or hating them or whatever. You forgive them, but forgiving also has boundaries. God allows us the consequences of our choices. And to me, the consequence of the choice of attempting to assassinate the President of the United States is you are put into some type of custodial institution and you are never let out, ever, again. And then we have Jelaine Maxwell. I 20 years, think that's appropriate for her. What if you were the mother or father of one of those 14-year-old girls? What do you think? We'll continue the discussion, 209-551-3483, in five minutes as the Mike Douglas Show continues on Power Talk 1360-KFIV. You're listening to the Mike Douglas Show, the voice of the valley. Power Talk 1360-KFIV. And welcome back to the Mike Douglas Show here on this Tuesday afternoon. 
on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Mike Douglas here, your concierge for conversation as we take a look at some of the tough issues of the day that affect you and me right here in the Central Valley of, uh, of California. We've been talking about uh, the, the common threads or the common denominators between three unconscionable acts. So one is the whoever abandoned that uh, big trailer filled with illegal immigrants just outside San Antonio, Texas, uh, in triple digits. The temperature went up to a high of 103 yesterday, and they've I think the body count is up to 51 uh, immigrants now uh, inside there, and uh, 16 other people were found inside the trailer, including four minors. Uh, they were taken to hospitals for heat stroke and exhaustion. Unbelievable. John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to assassinate President Reagan back in 1981, he's now out, free man. And then uh, Jelaine Maxwell, of course, uh, the... Uh, girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein, who helped him procure and groom 14 to 17-year-old girls to be sexually abused by Epstein and the men that he brought uh, to his island. Uh, she now is looking at a, um, a 20-year sentence in prison. I, uh, I wonder. I wonder if she'll survive it. I really do. And it, I... The, the, the whole situation to me, I, we, we can't trust. I, I can't trust. I'm sad to say it. As you know, ex-law enforcement, and I am a big supporter of law enforcement, by the way. I just need to have their backs. But at the highest echelons of federal and state law enforcement, I don't trust them anymore. I just don't trust them anymore. And so I, if I was uh, Jelaine Maxwell, which I would not be, uh, I, I'd be concerned. I'd be concerned. It'd be very interesting to see uh, how. Okay. But and let me get let me back to this this question. Do you feel the twenty year prison sentence is uh, is appropriate for her? Let Let's say it was your fourteen to seventeen year old daughter that they lured into being groomed to be sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein and the people he brought to his island. How would you feel? What, what, what type of sentence would you want for Jelaine Maxwell? You think this is appropriate? 20 years, is that enough? I mean, we're always constrained by the sentencing law. Understand that. I'm just asking in terms of Moral and emotional response to this, do you think uh, 20 years is good enough? So she's 60. That means she'd be in prison if she survives until she's 80. And then she would be uh, out again. And uh, again, John Hinckley Jr. I don't know, my friends. I just, uh, I, I think our our society, and I like what Frank said a couple of minutes ago, our, our caller named Frank, talked about the fact that uh, there was a lack of uh, conscience uh, in all of these acts. And it just seems to me that is pervasive in our culture right now. And as a, uh, from my worldview as a pastor, I, I attribute that to uh, the influence of evil, which seems to be rearing its ugly head in new and, inno- well, not new, but innovative ways uh, in, in today's world. So uh, anyway, I, I just... 
thank you for weighing in on that. If you have any other opinions on that, do you think Jelaine Maxwell, 20 years, is that appropriate for her? 209-551-3483, our number 209-551-3483. And while we're talking about government officials and such California voters, we will decide in November if abortion rights will become part of our state constitution. On a vote of 58 to 16, the state assembly met the requirement on voting yesterday to send the idea to the ballot. So the Senate had already passed that uh, amendment to the California constitution. It requires a two-thirds vote in each chamber, and that has happened. So uh, now here's, here's what this measure is going to insert into the state constitution. Quote, The state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refuse contraceptives. The section is intended to further the constitutional right to privacy guaranteed by Section 1 and the constitutional right not to be denied equal protection guaranteed by Section 7. Nothing herein narrows or limits the right to privacy or equal protection. All right, I'm looking here. I don't see any mention of the baby here. Do you or the fetus? Nope, nope. Apparently, that's not important to those who wish to insert this into the California Constitution. So what what are the leaders, uh, what are our leaders thinking? Well, let's find out what Tony Atkins thinks. As you know, Tony Atkins is the president pro tem of the California Senate. We will not be shoved back into the dark days of desperate decisions. Abortion is health care plain and simple. And the decision to have one lies solely with the patient. California will not leave people vulnerable. Well, you're going to leave some people vulnerable. The, the f- baby doesn't appear to have you. Know, they, you will leave them vulnerable, will you not, Ms. Atkins? Anyway, so there we go. Um, California leading the nation, and uh, we... Uh, we're so proud of our legislatures up there in uh, in Sacramento. Well, let's uh, take a look at some local things going on here. This is very this is very interesting to me. I'm going to come down here and focus on uh, the city of Modesto for a couple of moments. But think of it in in terms of how you would apply this and what you would think if this was your city, wherever you happen to live. So tonight, the Modesto City Council they're expected to approve a 1% sales tax for the November ballot. And if approved, city officials say the tax could bring in, what, $39 million annually, and that would be for public safety, addressing homelessness and blight, um, improving parks and other basics. The city's proposing a general sales tax, uh, again, for the ballot, requires a simple majority to pass and can be used for any general government purposes. Uh, currently, Modesto's tax rate is 7.875%. And uh, actually, that's lower 
than some of other uh, some of the other cities in our radio signal. Series is eight point three seven five percent. Turlock eight point six two five percent. Manteca eight point two five percent. Stockton is nine percent. So that would um, that would go into effect in April of twenty twenty three. So do you think the timing is good for this? And and I understand the need for this. I, I understand they're, they're grappling. And uh, the mayor, Mayor Sue Zwallen, had said some time ago that one of the problems here is their budget and the demands upon the budget is uh, unsustainable at the moment. And so I understand why, why they're doing this. I'm just thinking of the timing with the November ballot. But here's another wrinkle. Here's another wrinkle for this timing. The Modesto City Schools has okayed putting a $198 million bond measure on the November ballot as well. So not only will there be the City of Modesto 1% sales tax on the ballot in November, but also the Modesto City Schools 108 $198 million bond measure. Do you, what do you think about having both of those happening at the same time? And I don't, I'm not saying that they conspired to do this. I think each makes a good case for why they, uh, why they want it. The timing for the school board measure is important because to do it now, it requires 55% of voters in the district to support it. And uh, if it, it waits till a regular election uh, in another year or when there's no regular election, the threshold for voter approval goes up to almost 67%. So right now, the difference between getting approval by 55% of the voters and uh, 67 or 67% almost of the voters, that that's huge. And so what what's it? What's it going to do? What is, what is this? Uh, what is this bond measure going to do? Well, it's going to um, fulfill uh, and address some uh, needs that were uh, identified in a needs assessment done back in 2014: outdated and damaged facilities, replacing portables, leaky roofs, HVAC systems, upgrading cafeterias, plumbing, renovating classrooms. Updating classrooms, science labs, um, improved accessibility for ADA issues, uh, fire and emergency alarms, lighting, security cameras, fencing. Those are all important. Physical education, athletic uh, facilities. So my my question for you, uh, especially those of you in Modesto, but if this was in your city, what do you think? Do you think this is a good idea in terms of timing to have both of these measures on the November ballot? Not only both of them, meaning hikes in uh, in what people need to do to invest in their city, but also in terms of 8.6% inflation, the uh, rising gas uh, gas prices and apparently and by the way the the plan is not to uh, do a moratorium on the uh, state tax on gas they are looking at doing it for diesel which is good helpful but again it's only for three months i believe so uh what what do you think especially those of you in modesto good timing is this a good thing do you support it 
We'll talk more about that as the Mike Douglas Show continues in three minutes here on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Here's more with the Voice of the Valley, Mike Douglas on Power Talk 1360 KFIV and streamed on the iHeartRadio app. And welcome back to the Mike Douglas Show here on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. And you may be wondering, well, Mike, you you haven't talked about the January 6th hearing that uh, that all of the sudden new hearing that was scheduled for today. Nope, I'm not. Why am I not? Again, I'm going to explain why I'm not reporting on that. One, the process of putting the uh, people on the dais was extremely flawed. Two, and this is uh, this is a biggie, it is not a hearing. It's a show. If it was a hearing, there would be the ability to have cross-examinations by those who are being uh, accused of things, and you would have the ability uh, to have, uh, well, let's just call it pushback, <laughs> to respond to uh, some of these things. But there's there's none of that. There, there's, there's no questioning. There's no rebuttals. Uh, there's no cross-examination allowed. So it's not a hearing. It's, it's not a hearing. And, and thirdly, uh, I think because of all that, it's uh, whatever the outcomes are, are the fruits of the poison tree. It was poisoned from the beginning. It was not a hearing. So to me, whatever, whatever this body decides and comes, whatever its conclusion may be at the end, it's uh, the fruit of the poison tree and needs to be thrown out. Uh, and again, I, I don't always agree with Chris Wallace, but I happen to agree with him as he was asked about his uh, his take on this hearing committee before it even started. In fact, it was right before his he uh, right before it started. Here was uh, Chris Wallace's comments. First of all, I think the committee has fallen prey to terrible hype, terrible overselling. You've got Jamie Raskin, one of the members of the committee, saying uh, this is going to blow the roof off the house. You've got Anne's, Adam Kinzinger saying. It's going to change history. Uh, Secondly, they have gotten the former president of ABC News, Jim Goldston, uh, to produce this made-for-TV event. I I think that's a bad look both for the committee and for the mainstream media to seem that they're hand-in-glove with each other. I mean, the fact is, we live in a country. It's a year and a half ago that this happened. I think most people feel they know what happened. They either believe it or they don't believe it. And we live in a country in which 70% of Republicans according to the polls, do not believe that Joe Biden was elected legitimately. Do I think that something is going to happen tonight that's going to change that dramatically? I'm skeptical. Yeah, so I, I, I think that's a good summation. And so that's why I'm pretty much ignoring it, uh, because I don't think it's worth uh, reporting on. So there you go. There's your answer to why I'm not following it. A quick look at what else is happening in Sacramento. Apparently, Governor Gavin Newsom and his um, um, major blue legislature, the super blue legislature, has come to agreement on what to do with that pesky $97 billion budget surplus. Mm. Well, here's the deal. People making less than $75,000 a year you get 350 bucks if you make less than $75,000 a year. If you make between 75,000 and 125,000 per person, 
you'd each get 250 bucks. And if you make between 150,000 and 250,000 dollars, you get $200. And there's also a provision uh, for um, matching funds for one dependent per household. And as part of that agreement that uh, they apparently have hammered out, there would also be a suspension of the 39 cent per gallon state tax on diesel. On diesel but not the $0.54 per gallon tax on regular gasoline for this this coming year. So what do you think about that? Do you you like that? Uh, My my thought is this is pandering to the public and not just trying to be alliterative there. I think it's just pandering to the public in advance of the November 2022 elections. Uh, How about not taxing us as much, period. How about reducing the tax burden on those of us here in the state of California? What do you think about that? That's that's equitable, isn't it? Isn't that fair to all? Let us keep the money. But you see, what's happening here is confiscatory taxation. In other words, legally taking our money. Now, I don't mind taxation as a principle because we have to pay for roads, we have to pay for law enforcement and uh, other emergency services. Don't have any problem with that. I don't think we ought to be paying for other people's abortions. Uh, I don't think we ought to be paying for a lot of other things. But you see, here we go. This is the socialist's view of how we do things. We redistribute wealth. And that's what this is, simply is a redistribution of wealth. I'm going to take your money as the government, and I will decide what to do with it. And I will decide where to put it. And I will decide who it goes to. And it will not be an equitable redistribution uh, of these excessive surplus, $97 billion dollars. How about just letting us in the state of California, letting us, those, those of us who pay taxes, let us keep part of that money and, and reduce government programs. Oh, there's a horrible thought. We don't want to do that, Mike. I just, uh, so, but that's, uh, that's the supermajority. That's where we're going here in the state of California. And uh, so again, the proposal if you make seventy-five thousand, uh, less than seventy-five thousand, you get three hundred and fifty dollars. If you make between seventy-five thousand, hundred twenty-five thousand per person, you each get two hundred fifty bucks. If you make uh, between one hundred fifty thousand and two hundred fifty thousand, you get two hundred dollars. And then there's uh, an added uh, measure in there for one dependent per household. And uh, there would be a suspension, not a, a, a deletion of, but a suspension, I believe it's for three months, of the $0.39 cent, uh, per gallon uh, state tax on diesel, but not the $0.54 cents per gallon tax on regular gasoline. So in addition to gasoline prices being atrociously high, putting an incredible burden on many of us, and we'll by by the way later this week we'll talk to a uh, wonderful nonprofit that does great work, and we'll talk to them 
about how the uh, rise in gas prices is just devastating their budget. And in the nonprofit world, we can't just make more widgets. And it's not mine, by the way. It's another in town. And, and we'll tell you about that a little bit later on in this week. But the issue is this is out of control. And it definitely has socialistic overtones. We'll take your money and we will redistribute your wealth as we see fit. What happened to representation? regarding taxation. All right, coming up, Bob DeKlinski, retired FBI. We'll talk about the Second Amendment coming up on the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. The show you love, talking about the issues that are important to you. The Voice of the Valley, The Mike Douglas Show. Now, every weekday from 3 till 5. On air and online. Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Here again is your host, Mike Douglas. And welcome back to The Mike Douglas Show. Mike Douglas here, your concierge for conversation, as we have the opportunity to uh, tackle some of the big issues, the big topics that affect you and me today right here in California's Central Valley. And it's our pleasure now to have uh, with us retired FBI agent and also uh, firearms instructor Bob DeKlinski. And Bob, we have we have a lot to talk about since uh, we last had you on the air. And of course, one of those biggies is that 6-3 decision, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, where uh, the Supreme Court basically struck down a lot of New York State system for issuing uh, CCW permits. Let, let's start with that. What, what are your initial impressions of that decision and what it means for the rest of the nation? Well, well first of all, it's, it's nice to talk to you again. And, uh, there's a couple of things I, that you and I agree on, mostly everything, and one of them is uh, justice in the American way according to the Constitution. And this is one that's uh, is a plus for everybody. What it comes down to is that New York was only issuing concealed weapon permits if you can prove you needed it. And what the court said was that the Second Amendment doesn't stop at the door. They're allowed, they're telling New York, you've got to put it as, you shall issue, not may issue. So the citizen doesn't have to prove that he needs a weapon or she needs a weapon. It's automatic in the Second Amendment. Therefore, if the person says, I would like to get a CW, concealed weapon permit, that should be allowed unless there's circumstances that would dictate it otherwise. A person should not have to prove that they need a concealed weapon permit, and that's what it comes down to. And there are eight states that are like this and California is one of them. Bob, what do you think the, the effect upon California will be? I know that our attorney general, Rob Bonta is, uh, is busy trying to circumvent that as, as best he can. Uh, let, let's talk. I know for CCW permits, uh, up to this point, even in California here, uh, the, you know, the question is asked, what's, uh, what's the purpose of the permit? 
Uh, why do you need it? And that has been addressed by the Supreme Court. Do you see um, Do you see California sheriffs having to radically change their approach to this uh, to CCW permits, given what's happened with this decision? Well, it really comes down, I think, to what the state does. If if the state uh, allows a shell issue statement uh, for the CWs, it could change a lot. But right now, uh, the county sheriffs uh, may issue uh, a CCW. And uh, under this ruling, it should be changed by the state, which I doubt will happen, but it should become a shell issue. And it's really going to be up to the state to prove why you shouldn't get a weapon permit. It should be, it should not be that way for the citizen to have to try and prove that he or she has to have a pen, permit because they're, of their safety or whatever the case may be. It should be standard in the Second Amendment that it should be issued unless circumstances are dictated otherwise. My suspicions are that the state of California, as it is, uh, looks like it does right now in Sacramento, that they will do everything they can to vapor lock the system, uh, so to speak, that they will put as many obstacles in as they can and try to force people to uh, go to court. Uh, I, one thing I've seen, Bob, a lot, and not only in state government but in, in our federal government right now, is a lot of leaders really don't care what the law is. They really don't care what the court says. They do what they want to do. And then I, I guess their their strategy here is, well, go ahead and sue, and uh, we'll see how long we can drag it out. Do you, do you see that happening in California here with, uh, with, with its approach to uh, the Supreme Court decision? Yeah. The, the four uh, bills that are coming forward for uh, Newsom to sign, it's just an effort to slowly chip away at law-abiding citizens and our Second Amendment rights. All they want to do is, sure, if, if a law-abiding citizen, they keep bringing suits to them or the, um, the manufacturers of the weapons or the people that sell it, the firearms, people that have stores that are selling the firearms. You kind of try to keep suing them, you're going to put them all out of business. Anybody can bring a lawsuit, and it's just a way of aggravating them. And besides, the illegal person or the criminal is going to make a transfer of the guns, is going to sell the guns, and what, the government's going to go and sue them? It doesn't make sense. It's just a way of, like I said, uh, the right to keep and bear arms is not negotiable. This should not be an effort by the government to keep this uh, at a point where we got to jump through hoops each and every time uh, something happens. Bob, let's talk about your perspective while you were an FBI agent on active duty and the whole issue of CCW permits. How did you feel about that as an agent out there in the field? Did, uh, did you feel uh, that that was not a good thing? Did you feel it was a good thing? Uh, did, did you feel that it's a healthy thing for the citizenry as you are out there enforcing the law? Yeah. Well, yes, as an agent or, say, as a police officer, you just want to go after the bad guy and put him in jail. You're not worried about the citizen who's carrying a concealed weapon. It's for protection. It's for either practicing or going out and shooting or going hunting. 
those type of people I was not worried about. It was always the bad guy. And I never once feared that a citizen was going to shoot me. Accidents may happen. But the point is, there's not that general sense that I have to have fear when I'm going out and investigating a case, making an arrest, or doing whatever I may do as, a, as an FBI agent. Bob Deklinski, our guest, former FBI agent uh, and firearms instructor as well. Bob, let's uh, let's explore uh, for a couple of minutes the issue of of the red flag laws, or at least the proposals of those laws. As you've heard them up to this point, what flaws do you see? What positives do you see in in the uh, red flag laws? Well, let's look at this uh, Senate bill that passed concerning red flag laws. This bill was put before the, uh, the senators an hour before the first vote. They didn't get a chance to look at it. There was no debate on this thing to ensure that if a weapon is taken away from any citizen, we got to make sure we have due process. And that's the point of this thing. If red flags are stopping a person from having due process before their guns are taken away or their weapons, that is a violation of the Constitution. And therefore, it's, it's going to affect everybody. And uh, some of the stuff in the bill, who, who, who doesn't want to have uh, funding for mental health or crisis prevention? But the point is, in these red flag laws, you have to have due process. And they rush that bill through real quickly. And it's just going to be a one hearing after another. And believe me, it's going to eventually go to the Supreme Court again. I think there were, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there were some uh, at least 80 pages in this bill. And uh, again, those who were to vote upon this didn't have an opportunity really to go through those 80 pages and, and firmly uh, digest it and understand it. Again, this this is, uh, I think, really uh, intimidation from the uh, from the leaders there uh, in the hallowed halls of Washington, D.C. Certainly not a, and there wasn't even due process in the process of trying to make law about due process, was there? No, uh, uh, it, there was a, a rush to hold the first procedural vote on the legislation. Written an hour of the text was given to the public with all 80 pages. So they only had an hour, an hour before the, the first procedural vote. Now, what, what kind of sense does that make? It's just another way of uh, uh, a way of trying to pass the laws where they say it's common sense law, common sense on firearms. When was the last time anything came out of the Congress that was common sense? That was a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> I try to make. <laughs> we're talking. Yeah, with, we're right. talking with former FBI yeah, I, agent. I, 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 Bob Deklinski, also a firearms instructor. And uh, Bob's in three minutes. So I want to talk a, a bit about uh, nomenclature, uh, AR-15s, what that really means, assault weapons, and then uh, also talk about some of the myths that people have who, who aren't not knowledgeable about guns and such, some of the myths that we deal with as well. All that coming up in three minutes, my friends. And if you have a question you'd like to ask, Bob Deklinski, again, he's a former FBI agent and a firearms instructor. Now's the time. Area code 209-551-3483, 209 
3483. We'll be back with Bob Deklinski in three minutes here on the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Let's get social with Power Talk 1360 KFIV. And back with you here on the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Our guest is retired FBI agent and firearms instructor Bob Deklinski. Uh Bob, have uh, before we get into talking about some of the myths involving weapons, uh, straightening, out, straightening out some of the nomenclature and such, any other thoughts uh, about the, the bills that are, are currently pending in Sacramento or uh, any of the red flag law issues? Any final thoughts on that? Uh, the main thing on this is that they're trying to go after you financially. Mm. They want to sue anybody that they think they can do in order to stop gun violence. This is not stun gun does not stop gun violence. It just goes after the law-abiding citizen. And um, it just reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, going after uh, the gun makers and the, and the people that sell guns legitimately. Uh, they're regulated a lot. And I've gone into gun stores in uh, Oakdale and Turlock and uh, Merced. And when you go in there, they're professional. They want to make sure what they're doing is right. They know the law, and uh, they want to make sure that people come in, uh, can legitimately get it, and uh, either enjoy sporting, hunting, or just self-protection. I would imagine, and I've, I've talked to a few of those as well, that in today's world, uh, it, is, it is probably very difficult. It's a, it's a major challenge to be a, uh, a gun dealer right now in today's world. I would imagine that, uh, that trying to keep up with all the regulations and the laws and the pressure from the government, it, it's got to be a, a daunting profession to be in at the moment. It must, you know, uh, because laws are always changing. You know, the Congress or the state is always making new laws. And so these, these people have to stay on top of, the, uh, of all the new laws that are coming in. So it's quite a challenge. Absolutely. Again, we're talking with Bob Deklinski, former FBI agent and firearms instructor. And we'll open the phones if you have a question for Bob. Uh, love to hear it from you. 209-551-3483. 209-551-3483. Bob, let's address some of the issues that have been really confused by a lot of our state and national leaders Let's uh, let's talk about what an AR-15 is and uh, the misnomer of assault rifle and such. Let, let's can we straighten that out for folks? Okay, let's try. the 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 origin of the assault weapon stems from the term assault rifle, which the, the United States Army defined as a selective fire rifle. That means you can either use single fire on it, you can do a burst of fire on it or you can go automatic. The term assault rifle only applies to an automatic firearm. What the left has done is they're trying to change a single fire AR-15 and disguise it as an assault weapon. It even got to the point where uh, the guy named Chipman, who was going to be, he was nominated by Biden to be the ATF director and Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton, asked him a simple question, what is an assault weapon? And, he, and I saw the interview, and he tried and tried to uh, 
changed the subject, said it would be left up to Congress to decide what it is. And then when he finally described it, he said it's largely an AR-15. But then Cotton said, basically, you're covering every single modern sport rifle in America today. And it would even include a number of collectible rifles. So even the nominee could describe what an assault weapon was. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, another thing, Bob, I think that's important is to uh, define uh, the difference between an automatic weapon and a semi-automatic weapon. Can you talk about that? Well, the, 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 like the AR-15 that we have today that's sold um, over the counter is a single shot. You pull the trigger, you will have one round go out. It's called a semi-automatic weapon. The pistols are the same way. Revolvers are the same way. Joe Biden even went so far as talking about a 9-millimeter pistol that he wanted to get rid of. And that is one of the favorite guns for self-protection and target shooting. And that's what President Biden wants to go after is a semi-automatics. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think what they're preying upon, I, I think in some cases, Bob, that there is just a lack of knowledge amongst elected leaders. But I think for some, it's very intentional that they're intentionally mm-hmm. using the wrong, <laughs> the wrong verbiage uh, and, and such. Uh, I mm-hmm. think there is some intentionality uh, behind that in, in some cases. Uh, so let, let's uh, approach uh, another uh, quick, quick question here. I got the question uh, last uh, week or a week or so ago, and we'll do this very quickly. Uh, someone called up and said, well, why, why, why don't, why don't why doesn't law enforcement just shoot to to wound versus shoot to kill? Why do you shoot to kill? Uh, can you answer that for us? Okay, real yes, real quickly. Two reasons. One is if you shoot to wound, you can uh, miss that person, and you might shoot or wound to kill another person behind them or in somebody in the area. If you shoot to wound, that other person still has the capability of coming back into you and either killing you, shooting you, hurting you in one way or another. The point of drawing the gun and shooting that person is to neutralize the threat. That's the main focus, and you shoot until you neutralize. I think, Bob, one of the problems is Hollywood has really uh, disrupted and, uh, and confused that whole issue. You know, we don't... Law enforcement, uh, they're not taught to shoot guns out of people's hands and, and such. And But I think Hollywood has really contributed to some of that confusion, don't you think? Oh, my goodness. If I could do that, I'd be the wonder guy of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, uh, we've been visiting with Bob Deklinski, former FBI agent and uh, also firearms instructor. Uh, Bob, we have about 30 seconds or so left. Uh, your, your words of wisdom to those who may be thinking about obtaining a CCW permit, what, what would you like to do in terms of encouraging them and advising them in terms of training uh, before they get the permit? Well, uh, you need to go down to your local gun shop and, and ask to ask them what's the favorite defensive weapon that's out there to protection, if that's what you're looking for. And there's a lot of resource there. They can give you advice. They can tell you what the law is, what you need to do. And then if you find the weapon you think you're interested in, go out and practice with that. There are a number of gun ranges that you can practice with that particular weapon. 
And then if you're satisfied with it, you can purchase it, and you can come back and get a CCW or request one, and train, 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 so you're not afraid to use it if the time comes. Amen, amen, and amen. Bob Deklinski, thank you. We always just uh, love having you on with, with your wisdom. Thanks so much for visiting with us today. Really appreciate it. Bob Deklinski has been our guest. The Mike Douglas Show continues in five minutes here on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. The Mike Douglas Show. Now weekdays from 3 till 5 on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. A pastor with passion. A minister with manners. Now, back to the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. And welcome back to the Mike Douglas Show here on hour number two on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Again, our thanks to uh, Bob DeKlinski, a retired FBI agent and firearms instructor. A lot of good clarifications there and good recommendations as well. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today. We talked a little bit about red flag laws and the potential abuse of those, uh, how they can be good, but also taken to an extreme. They can also be counterproductive and they can keep uh, CCW permits and such. They can keep weapons out of the hands of the people who really, according to the U.S. Constitution, have a right to have those weapons. There's an interesting case. I don't know if you've read about this or not, but there is a a mother that appeared uh, both before Modesto City School Board and the uh, Modesto City Council as well. And she is saying that uh, her son exhibited some very, very worrisome tendencies made some very worrisome statements. In fact, she said, I'm a psychiatric nurse, and it's not something to play around with. He's a ticking time bomb. And she believes that her son uh, needs to have uh, special uh, intensive treatment, residential treatment and such. But the, the crux of the problem is, in order to get the treatment she would like to have for her son, They need uh, an IEP, the Individual Educational Plan from Modesto City Schools, that would basically authorize that treatment. Now, I am assuming, and I know, I know, one one of my great Douglas laws of life is never assume anything. But I don't know, so I'm making an educated guess here that if the school district agrees to a uh, IEP, Individual Education Plan, that requires him to be in an inst- a residential institution, for example, that my suspicion is that the district would have to pay for all that. That would not be on, on the mother's dime. So let me fill you in with, with and, and I think maybe the best way to do this is to let you listen to uh, her presentation. Now, this was uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I think it was, uh, well, June 15, maybe before that, as she was addressing uh, the Modesto uh, City School Board, and she presented her thesis on what she wanted. She pointed out the problem. She feels that her son is a, is a present danger, 
not only to himself, but to the school and to her. Uh, she apparently is a, a single mom of, of five sons as well. So let's talk about this after we listen to her present her concerns. And again, the, I'm taking a lot of this from a, a very good report that the Modesto Bee did uh, not too long ago. And uh, this is a recording of her appearing before, and I believe it was before the Modesto City School Board, making her case for what she wanted for her son. I've had some issues with my son who attended La Loma. Some huge safety issues had happened. He threatened to bring a gun on campus and shoot people. The school did not report it to anyone other than myself. They did not call law enforcement. They did not uh, contact child and welfare and attendance or whatever in a timely manner. It went on for seven months before this issue was even notated in his file. My son is high-functioning autistic. He's bipolar, ADHD, among other things. And at this point in time, I'm trying to get him residential treatment. He has done various behaviors inside the home and outside where he has taken weapons after other kids and has seriously injured other kids. And I feel that this gun threat at school is not being taken seriously, that he would hurt somebody as well as others in the community. And he needs residential treatment. And the only way to get that for my son is through the IEP process. I have already gone to benchmark residential treatment facility where the entire treatment team has approved him based on their whole team of psychiatrists, um, nurses, social workers, things of that have reviewed his entire file. He has met criteria. The only thing lacking for him to have that bed officially is for it to be put in his IEP. I am literally begging you to help keep the school safe, help keep our community safe, and help my son get well. It's what he needs. I am telling you, I'm a psychiatric nurse. This isn't something to play around with. I've done residential care. He's a ticking time bomb. Nobody wants the liability of if he does something. When you guys have the knowledge of how many times he's hurt somebody, letters from his private psychologist and psychiatrist telling you he needs residential now, nothing else will be okay. I need this issue addressed immediately and get my the care my son needs and keep our school safe, please. All right, so there is the mother, in her own words, explaining the situation and her desire is to have this individual educational plan that will uh, demand, I guess, uh, or prescribe uh, this in-person, in-residence, residential uh, treatment program. And now, uh, what was the school district's response? And again, I'm I'm relying upon the report from the Modesto B here, and they quote district spokesman Kristen Noonan, who said that uh, it was an isolated incident and, quote, more importantly, no weapon was brought onto the campus. Upon learning of the alleged threat, site administration took steps to address it and engage in conversations directly with the student and family, and in the end, all staff and students remained safe. 
She went on to say the district acknowledges that there was a slight delay that occurred in the process of entering the information into our discipline record-keeping system. However, site administration had already engaged in conversations with the individual to ensure the threat was thoroughly vetted, and after those discussions, it was determined to be non-credible. And so my read of this is she is asking the Modesto City School District to put an individual educational plan into play that would prescribe him going, her son, going to a uh, residential program to uh, address the issues that he's having and and these violent uh, tendencies. My guess, I do not know, my guess is one of the major issues here is if the school district does that, I would assume that there would be a great deal of liability involved there and that the school district may be on the hook for paying for those services. Again, I don't know that for sure. I'm making an educated guess here. So what do you think? What do you think? Should the mother be responsible for the treatment that her son receives from this point on? Or do you feel that the school district ought to be responsible for that and that they should give him the IEP that he's asking for. What do you think? Does she have a good point? And the overall issue here is, and and this is the positive side of the red, red flag type proposals and laws, is that you catch these violent tendencies before they manifest in real life. So on the positive end here, it looks like that a possible tragedy was averted, both by the mother, the response of the mother, and the response of the school district. School district saying, in this particular case, although he may have made some threats, no weapon was brought onto the campus. And I believe, uh, looking earlier on in the article, that uh, guns have been removed from uh, the home. And at least uh, the guns uh, that were present at that time were locked in a safe at the time of the threat. Yes, but uh, those guns, according to the B, have since been moved to uh, uh, safe and and uh, in in someone else's house. So here we have a a dicey situation. On the positive side, the efforts toward identifying the threat ahead of time seem to have worked. But now, what do we do after that threat has been identified? School districts saying, yeah, there were some threats made, but there was no gun involved and no gun was brought to the campus. The mother's saying he had the potential to do that and she would like the school district to implement the IEP, the Individual Education Plan, that would prescribe residential treatment for her son. Again, I suspect the issue is if the school district does that, the school district may be the one paying for that, and I don't know what kind of liability the school district would have in that case. There's some good uh, food for thought here. What do you think? Should the mother get the plan, or do you feel the school district is right in its stance? 
Our number here, 209-551-3483. 209-551-3483. We'll talk more about it in three minutes here on the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. He's got issues. Let's talk about it. The Mike Douglas Show on air and online. Power Talk 1360 KFIV. And welcome back to the Mike Douglas Show here on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Mike Douglas with you, your concierge for conversation. At the moment, our conversation centering upon a, a very interesting case in uh, in the city of Modesto related to the Modesto City Schools. And, uh, and, and, and again, I see the positive side of this. How many times have we heard of a school shooting where parents or family or friends would often say, well, yeah, we, we noticed that he or she was acting strangely or, or saying uh, very destructive things. And then we ask the question, well, why didn't anybody step up to the plate and do something about it? Well, I think in this type of case, it looks like somebody did. The mother especially identified a potential problem here. And uh, although the, the, her son had uh, made some threats, he did not have a weapon at school, did not carry out those threats. So the issue now is the mother is saying, will you help me? in developing an individual education plan for my son that will involve putting him into a residential program. And while we may say, well, that that sounds great, it, it does come back to who pays for that. I don't know. Again, I'm making an educated guess that possibly if the school district says, yes, we're, we're going to uh, issue an IEP, that says that uh, he must be in a this residential program that has been uh, recommended by her son's psychiatrist. Again, the son, uh, her son's psychiatrist told her that uh, her son needed to be put in a, a one-to-one uh, situation where uh, someone was with him the whole time. And uh, the, the district is saying... Well, upon learning of the threat, uh, we did take action. They admitted that uh, some things fell through the cracks in terms of timing. But the issue now is, should the school district be responsible for this follow-up treatment of, of, uh, of the young man? Uh, it is uh, not, not an easy answer, and so let, let's, let's find out what you think. And uh, Eric from Modesto is a therapist. Eric? Help us with this. What are your insights here? So uh, my wife uh, has worked um, in, in, the, in the realm of She's a teacher for autism. She also was a behavioral consultant for the last 25 years. Um, and she's done quite a few IEPs in Modesto, Ripon, and Ceres. And so my, my first question to the mom would be, has she went through, did she have an SST meeting, which is a student support team, which is where they kind of address the initial issue and then they come up with a plan with um, um, goals and if those goals aren't reached, then they do like what's called a 504 and then the 504 kind of like does the same thing and then eventually they have an IEP. Um, So my first question would be, has she gone through all those hoops? 
It sounds Does like that make sense? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm scanning the article. I can't answer your question uh, right off the bat, but it seems like a lot of meetings have taken place. In your experience, Eric, and and let's let's deal uh, w- with I I think a question that comes to my mind. Would the school district be liable for the expenses? And maybe an unfair question yeah. for you, but I'm asking, would the school district be responsible for the expenses and eventually any liabilities stemming from an IEP that would include that residential treatment? So in, in my experience and in, and in watching my wife go through her experiences, yeah, the, the, if, the, if autism his autism is if there's certain things that are keeping him from moving forward with his education, behavioral, um, if there's, if that's hindering him, then they have to um, uh, help um, as far as like AIDS, as far as like schools, as far as training. Um, Yeah. They're liable for that cost to help him move along in his education. Yes. And I've actually had experiences where um, some students were even, um, uh, you know, flown to different states where that particular school has like the perfect scenario for their, um, you know, their what they're dealing with. And the school like would pay for flights, they would pay for um, the schooling itself, um, parents stay in a hotel. So like, and again, I'm not saying like that's what she needs necessarily, but like, yeah, the school is definitely liable um, for the student to reach his goal as far as educational. So if it's if his uh, autism or his ADHD or whatever it is is hindering him, they have to supply a certain um, you know uh, safety mechanisms, whether it's like I said, like an aid, um, whether it's education, whether it's training. Um, usually that's, in my experience, what, what I've seen. Eric, let's look at uh, the positives here. Again, we're dealing with what may happen in the future, and we just don't know uh, what, what final decisions are being made here. But let's look at the positives from your experience. It sounds to me like uh, a mother very aware of the issue did the right thing, and that uh, and that the, the the issue was addressed right away, whether or not he had access to weapons at the time. It sounds like the mother did the right thing in terms of raising the issue, don't you think? Yeah, so and I, and I hate to sound pessimistic, but in my and again, in my experience, and then I, I actually I've worked in schools as a counselor at Enox and then in the series school district, um, it's it's sad to say, but they're not in the preventive mentality. They're more as far as like, you know, they're more reactive. And that's the sad thing. Um, if they were more into preventing things, which, I, again, I understand takes more money. Um, but being more of a reactive is, is not helping. And it's definitely not helping this mom. And we're talking uh, about mitigation efforts, uh, I, I think, uh, right on the on the front end, yeah. things that we can do in, in partnership with parents and the community and the school districts to uh, mitigate totally. yeah. uh, the, these things in advance. Eric, any other observations uh, as you've l- looked at some of these other uh, tragedies? Uh, any other observations that, that you'd like to share? We have about a, a minute and a half left. 
Yeah, you know, um, I've been doing I've been doing counseling for about about 15 years now, and there's definitely, um, again, in my opinion, I, I, I'm going to beat a dead horse, but, like, you can recognize patterns, and then once you see a pattern, you know, um, doing more in a preventive um, reaction rather than just reacting after. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've just seen over and over again where, where some of my clients, um, they just – there's been lots of signs and then all of a sudden, you know, the dam breaks and everybody's wondering why, um, when we could have like prevented this, when we could have addressed it at the very beginning. And I think the school district, uh, the school system in general is more in, in that vein where they're more just reacting rather than preventive, um, and recognizing the signs. That's just my opinion. Eric, thank you so much. We uh, we appreciate you weighing in, especially uh, with your experience as well. Eric from Modesto, you you added uh, a lot to our conversation today. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, we appreciate that very much. Yeah, thank you. Listen to you a lot of it. Appreciate it. All right, Eric. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Some great comments there. Some great conversation. We'll uh, we'll have some more conversation coming up tomorrow from 3 to 5 p.m. Here on the Mike Douglas Show on Power Talk 1360 KFIV. Thanks so much for joining us today. Again, I'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow, 3 o'clock.